Welcome to After Hours, an interview podcast series from Lady. I'm Laura McClaus-Helms, the fashion and cultural historian. The last two months have flown by, and now we are in a new year, a new decade. I meant to get this episode up at the end of 2019, but holiday travel and then a post-holiday cold delayed it. Let's just say that it is very difficult to record one of these intros with no voice. Recently, I sat down with Veronica Vera, a woman whose career path is circuitous, varied, and always joyfully playing just outside of society's norms. Vera grew up in a strict Catholic household in New Jersey. After college, she moved to New York City and worked for a small brokerage firm on Wall Street. There, she discovered sex, a revelation that forever changed the path of her life. Since then, sex and sexuality have been the defining focus of Veronica's multifaceted career as a sex journalist, porn star, erotic model, prostitutes' rights activist, and later the head of the world's first cross-dressing academy. Her explorations in sex led her to model for the likes of Robert Maplethorpe, brought about her first published writing, introduced her to her best friends, and opened up the world of porn to her. As she details in our interview, Veronica met the porn star Annie Sprinkle in the late 1970s on a debauched weekend in upstate New York. Fast friends, the two became collaborators, first on a series of erotic art book and magazine projects, and then on porn films in the mid-1980s. Together, they were co-founders of the first porn star support group, Club 90. From the late 1970s through the 90s, Veronica Vera was a featured author and columnist in erotic magazines like Adam and Penthouse Variations. I first discovered Veronica through an old issue of Adam and was immediately intrigued. In that issue, Veronica wrote about testifying in front of a Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Juvenile Justice led by Senator Arlen Specter that was investigating pornography. She showed visual aids, including photos of herself in bondage, and read a piece of erotica that surely titillated all of the assembled politicians. On reading this, I wanted to know more about this strong, sexually confident woman, and started to do a deep dive of her work, which led to this interview. By the late 1980s, she had also begun to work with cross-dressers who were newly exploring this aspect of themselves. She would help them with shopping, makeup, wigs, walking, and the like. Soon realizing that this was a full curriculum, she established Miss Vera's Finishing School for Boys Who Want to Be Girls. We talk extensively in the interview about her finishing school, a still flourishing establishment run from her pot pink Chelsea apartment, where we also held this interview. The school assists cross-dressers in all the effeminate arts and in becoming more comfortable with themselves. Veronica has a warm, motherly energy that is a perfect match for this work. Now the author of three books from the perspective of Miss Vera, She's a knowledgeable guide and educator about gender issues. While we dove into all aspects of her work and career, Veronica also opened up about relationships and death. As the end-of-life partner for three men, she has a deep understanding of pain, sorrow, love, and loyalty. Now starting work on an autobiography, Veronica was a joy to talk to. Love, sex, the creative process, writing, art, New York, it's all here in this interview. Enjoy. Where we are now, mm-hmm. we're in we're in my home, but it also serves as Miss Vera's finishing school for boys who want to be girls. The academy I started um, after it started at first as a way to support a memoir that I wanted to write about my life in the '80s and all I had learned exploring my sexuality in the '80s. Mm-hmm. Um, but the I came up with the academy was the right idea at the right place in the right time. And so the academy took off. 
you know, coming up with the name of the school, you know, and the whole concept for a school where people who had lived as men could learn to be more like women. It was, a, you know, it was the right idea. And it was at a time when, when to do that was still very considered a perverse activity. And I did it in a very open way because I had learned, you know, by exploring my own sexuality that we all have a right to be who we are mm-hmm. as sexual human beings as long as we respect the rights of others. Yeah. So when the press came and wanted to know more about the school and, you know, what this was all about, I was really prepared to answer, you know, and, and, um, and to be really out there. So while a lot of people who come here are closeted, the school itself has always been very out. So, you know. And have you seen, I mean, there's been such huge shift, I think, in sort of the idea of gender mm-hmm. since then. Mm-hmm. How has that affected, changed your students and who's coming to you? Well, now I'm finding like, you know, now I'm finding like we're busier. And for a while I thought like, oh, well, you know, now people are like less afraid to go, you know, like Sephora now will do makeup. Mm-hmm. And then there's a certain commodification of the whole yeah. gender movement. So, but but there are still people who want the privacy, who want the one-on-one, and so there's more of those people coming, especially during this fall season, you know, the Halloween season, the fall season, like all of a sudden, we've gotten really busy. And for me, it's like, I want to devote more time now to writing, because as I said, I started the Academy to finance a memoir. Yeah, but I was going to say you should do that memoir. Right, the <laughs> memoir went on the back burner. And now it's time, you know, the memoir has got to be an autobiography by now. So now it's time I've been organizing my archives. Like the summer, it was this, the Academy itself was slow and I was using the time to, you know, put my archives into boxes, work with an assistant to do, you know, to help with the archiving, do Excel sheets and things that I hate to do like I'm not good at you know some of this yeah uh something like excel so the timing was good but now it's like oh and from now until the end of the year I will um, concentrate on academy stuff but in January I hope to turn this place back more into my own home and then have the academy but maybe do it at certain times of the year not or have it open all year do a lot more things online, both for my writing work and for my, uh, and for the academy. You know, mm-hmm. um, I had a meeting with my deans recently, and they're gung ho. They're all younger than I am, the, and they're they they love working with the academy. They love this work, and the people who come here are very grateful. You know, and so they you know, and and we enjoy what we do. So. It's very gratifying work. So they're up for, you know, doing podcasts, doing whatever. They like keeping the team together. So that's that's good. Having read some of your writing, I think you definitely should be putting it out there. But yeah. also continue this really valuable work. Uh, you know, and I'd love to sort of talk about where did you grow up? Where were yeah, you I grew up just 15 miles from here um, in a place called Linden, New Jersey, mm-hmm. which is like kind of over the Verrazano Bridge. And so... Um, but I grew up, I was raised as a Catholic, so I went to Catholic school. My parents were very loving, but they were very protective. So, and I even, I went to college, I commuted to college, so I never got out. Of, where, where, the college in New Jersey? Yeah, at the time it was called Newark State, now it's called Kane University. Mm-hmm. So after college, I was really ready to bust loose. And so I came to New York and... I started interviewing at publishing houses because I knew I wanted to be a writer. That was always my goal. 
and but when I went to when I went to high school and college especially in high school like you didn't if you were going to if you were taking the college prep course which is I don't know what they call it now but if you were headed for college you didn't learn how to type that was for the the people who were like not as smart that was for the people who were going to be secretaries mm-hmm. so they learned all the good stuff like typing and economics and bookkeeping and all the stuff you really needed to in the world yeah. and our you know my education was more liberal arts it concentrated on liberal arts so I came to New York I interviewed at publishing houses and it was really humiliating because I had to take typing tests all the time and it was like 26 words a minute and you know 10 errors and it was really embarrassing so I took a typing course I commuted to a typing course at the Y on uh, the Y WCA on Lexington and 51st and from there the woman who taught the course was Greek and I'm half Greek and plus I was like trying to you know I was working hard in the class so she said oh I have someone you know the the husband of one of my students needs someone in his office in Wall Street so I interviewed at this place it was a small over-the-counter trading house on Wall Street and now we're talking like 1969 mm-hmm. they weren't even on computers yet so it was like about taking following up on tr- trades that had been problems so it was like a troubleshooting so the the man who interviewed me said well why don't you go over and to the stock exchange and just take a look at what goes on there and at the time you could you know stand in the gallery and you could look at the trading floor and it was all seemed very exciting you know and even though like balance sheets and economics were not in my head at all it just it was like november and i'd been waitressing at the airport since june <laughs> i thought okay maybe i'll give this a try so I went to work at this place. The first week I was there, they, I was making $100 a week, right? The first week I was there, they, they declared a bonus, and everybody was getting double their salary. So the first week I got an extra $100, and I thought, oh, maybe this will be okay. But what happened there was um, it, uh, there was a, a trading room with about a half dozen people in it, half, like half dozen guys. And the head guy was a very loud mouth short Napoleonic guy with very dirty mouth and he became not only my mentor but also my boyfriend my married married boyfriend so I wrote about this in this book on me too because it was really it was really a me too moment but at the time there was no word for there wasn't a word yet for sexual harassment and for me I had come from a very protected household and this man was he was helping me pay my bills. He was, te- you know, I was I was working alongside him in the trading room. So I was sort of learning, you know, the tr- how to trade. And he was taking me, you know, to um, to shows on Broadway and, you know, showing me the New York life from the high points, you know, the highest points. And he was very good in bed. And I was like this repressed Catholic girl. Had you had sex before? I had had sex before, but it was like the, it was, it was the first, the the boyfriend that I'd lost my cherry to. Once I gave, once I had sex with him, he didn't want to see me, you know, anymore. It was like those stories that I'd heard, you know, from my mother, like, oh, if you do that, you know, boys won't respect you. Mm -hmm. That was, so that was him. And then the second one, the second time I had sex with a boy I'd been seeing for a while, uh, and this was only the set. The second person I was having sex with, we had sex, and then after he was disappointed because 
I, there was no blood on the sheets. And I felt like so gypped because I thought like, oh, you know, here, here I only had sex once before. And now he's like thinking like I'm some kind of a, uh, a floozy, mm-hmm. but it's like, so anyway, but we continue to see each other anyway. But, but this married guy was like, he called them both. He just, he, I, I, I wrote in here, he just said, when I told him these stories, he just said like, schmucks, you know? And I said, he liberated me with that one word, you know? So we continued to see each other. So when you say it, like, like looking back, do you feel like it was sexual harassment? I or? feel like, I, I don't feel I was totally un... Uh, in your own power? Or? I feel like... I went along with it because mm-hmm. I got something out of it. So, you know, and that's why when we moved, when I when I first moved to New York, I was living with two roommates. One was my roommate from college. And I was living in an apartment on 74th between Amsterdam and Columbus, mm-hmm. which at the time was like not a great neighborhood. Yeah, the park was called Needle Park. I forget what I co- the name I call him in Me Too, but his name was Norman. But in Me Too, I give him a different name something like uh, something that sounds like Norman but anyway he decided like he we he visited me there and he said oh you know you have to move so i moved to he helped me move he to 54 56th street between 1st avenue and sutton mm-hmm. place now that apartment was one i could not afford on my own so he he helped me with the rent there my income was definitely tied with his and he was my protector in a way. And at a time I thought I needed a protector, you know? So, cause I came to New York, I, I believe I came to New York totally unprepared, you know, totally unprepared for the city. Mm-hmm. Um, so I w- had been overprotected at home, very loved at home, but very overprotected. Also didn't learn good um, financial thinking at home, like our, at home our finances were very up and down. So in this Me Too book, there's a section you know, when when they asked us to write essays, so I wrote the essay about my experiences with with Norman this trader, and then at the end it said, you know, the uh, the editor asked us to say, how would you, you know, what advice would you give to people so this doesn't happen again? And one of my things is like, you got to be prepared. You got to, you know, be prepared financially. You got to know, you know, um, what you're getting in for, and and know about you know how to how to take care of yourself financially, and I'm not still figuring that out. Too. Yeah, I wasn't taught the financial part at all. Yeah, right. It's like you know. So that's I'll tell you, all my life, like um, I've dealt with sex and helped other people deal with sex, but the real challenge for me is finance. You know, that's been the challenge for me all my life. Even you know doing the academy, it's like oh. You know, I came up with this huge idea, but when certain opportunities came along, I didn't want to take them because I always felt like, oh, it's like, oh, I could never afford this or I could never afford that. And, and, and oh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do like sell products because I don't see myself as a retail person. But selling products would have helped, would help support the academy. So to like get have some kind of partnership with someone to do do that so all these things you know Mm -hmm. even you know when this building went well anyway just learning about finance and now I see it's like that's so important so important and that was the big lesson that I that I didn't learn and that I still deal with to this day you know now I'm like 
um, when Stu died, he left me an apartment uptown, mm-hmm. and I'm selling it now. And it's, and it was it's a special deal with the city, so it's not going to be a huge uh, windfall for me. Mm-hmm. I can't even think of it as a windfall since he died, you know. But it'll be a, you know a couple hundred thousand dollars. So it's like okay, now I need to plan, you know, like some of that to go, you know, in the bank, but. So I want some of it to help me make more money, you know, so it's about planning. And, and so I've never kind of been a big planner and stuff like that is important. You know, part of the reason I got into porn was because it's instant gratification, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. instant gratification and also very little rejection. You know, nobody likes rejection, but I didn't like to be rejected. I grew up getting gold stars on my papers, being a little smart, smarty pants in class, you know, and to... And to go and get those typing tests and failing everyone, and you know, I was like, oh no, this is not for me. Even now, I've written like this great piece on, um, we did a bondage shoot with a student, which we don't normally do here, because that's not the style of the mm-hmm. academy. But I decided to, to do it with the student, and the student had come several times, and I thought, why not, you know, go back to my roots? And like, and I knew people who could really make us, help us do it really in a good way. Mm-hmm. So we did this shoot, and I wrote this whole long piece about of human bondage. So, you know, so I'm now thinking, oh, this will be good for, like, New York Magazine or something. You know, it's a place where a lot of women will read it. And so it's, sit, it's, it's in my computer. I had, you know, an assistant, my assistant, like, helped me write the pitch for it. Um, also f- research, okay, who's looking for stuff? And I still haven't acted on it, you know? So it's like... Get a grip, Veronica. <laughs> I understand completely as a writer and yeah, everything. Yeah, as a woman, all of it, totally. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, you can, I can like give other people such great advice and help other people change people's lives. Mm-hmm. You know, people write to me, oh, you changed my life. And it's like, okay, yeah, but you know, it's like life is a challenge, you know, and we all have our, we all have our challenges. We all have our Achilles yeah. heels. You know, and not all of them are high. <laughs> but a lot of people don't change other people's lives. Yeah. So yeah. that's a huge thing. So when you were with Norm yeah. and working on Wall Street. I think maybe I called him Sherman in the book. <laughs> I always just sort of wondered, like, what were you wearing at these kind of, like, oh. like full-on suits and everything? No, no, really? no, no, no. Uh-uh. I, I it's the time, of, I remember, like, no, in an over-the-counter house, it was very... It wasn't like a big board house. It wasn't okay. like a New York Stock Exchange house. I mean, the the men wore suits, but you no, know. I don't know enough of, no, to know the difference. I've only really seen things in movies. Okay. <laughs> well, this was a, like a sm- much smaller place, mm-hmm. and the and at that time only the men were trading. You know, there was at that time Muriel Siebert was the only woman who had a seat on the New York Stock okay. Exchange. One person, one woman. So it was all men. I wore like wrap dresses. Deanna Vreeland had already mm-hmm. had designed the wrap dress. I wore wrap dresses. I wore nice clothes, but there were very there there were definitely girl clothes. And I didn't really wear. I most of the time I didn't wear jeans. Some of my, I mean, I never wore jeans. But very rarely did I wear pants. A friend of mine used to wear hot pants to work. You know, wow. it was the era, era you could wear hot pants. And she worked in another over-the-counter house. She used to wear hot pants. But I was always, I always considered myself a chubby girl. So I was never into shorts. But I remember, yeah, it was hot pants. And um, so, yeah, so we didn't, it wasn't provocative clothes, you know, that I wore anyway. But it was, it was definitely girl clothes. It wasn't, we weren't trying to look like men. 
And you were said that you went out, you went out with him a lot. And what? Were oh you yeah, doing? yeah. Oh well, we would go to Broadway shows. We would go, you know, out to dinner. Um, we'd go. We went to like the, the, um, Joe Fraser, Muhammad Ali oh, wow. boxing match at Madison Square Garden, and that was like I for that I remember I wore this sheer this crochet dress with a body body suit underneath. Because in the 70s, you could wear, like, very provocative outfits outside, you know. I remember, like, in in the evening going out and wearing, like, a sheer black blouse with orange flowers, small orange flowers all over it, and no bra underneath it. There was another shop uh, uptown, I think it was called Granny Takes a Ride. They had these, Granny like, Takes long, a Trip? Yeah, Granny Takes a Trip with all bell-bottom outfits. It was the era of platform shoes, you know. 70s fashion was really pretty great those are some of my favorite outfits. I still can fantasize to some of the outfits that I wore in the in the 70s because they were so easy uh to get out of you know mm. <laughs> so he was he, he really your introduction to sex yeah we had sex a lot you know he was he was a good lover mm-hmm. um and we fit well together and he was very good at oral sex and that was that was new to me you know, that was really, um, before that I hadn't experienced oral sex. So the introduction to oral sex, receiving oral sex was, was amazing. You know, that was amazing. So, um, yeah, I think that was part of the reason why we stayed together. (laughs) So we were together like from like, I guess maybe 69 to about 73, like, you know, um, and then I left that, I left that job. I left, you know, that whole the job I left him um I had some other boyfriends um and I lived outside of I didn't I moved out of Manhattan I lived in Queens for a mm-hmm. short time I had a car um and then I lived in Brooklyn for a short time I had another a boyfriend in Brooklyn and so instead of working or are you just sort of yeah um I worked for for a while I worked at the um the Brooklyn Hospital well, first, I worked for a bead man who lived had a bead business mm-hmm. on Thirty Sixth Street. Um, I worked for another brokerage house for a while, and but then I worked for the bead man, and then I worked for, at the nursing office at um, Brooklyn Hospital, mm-hmm. and then like seventy seven, I decided I'm just going to move back into the city, and so I came. That's when I came and I found this apartment, and I decided, I decided I wanted to live in a part of the city that stayed open, you know, because in Brooklyn. At night, it wasn't a lively place. It was mm-hmm. more like a neighborhood, you know. So, so I came and and I started looking in the village, and it was too expensive. So I came here, and these were like the largest apartments I could find, and still be close to the village. And at the time, this neighborhood was very Latin, a Latina neighborhood, and so the only restaurants were Cuban Chinese restaurants, Latin Chinese restaurants, and there were bodegas, and that was about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then. Um, as more gay men started uh, moving into this area, it became more gentrified, and we got more restaurants. And and but what and the meat market yeah was really so the much. meat market. It was mm-hmm. full of meat, and it was full of hookers, and you know a lot of them transsexual, transvest, tranny hookers, uh, transgender hookers. Now they would be called or trans women. So that was the neighborhood then. There were sex clubs in that. You know, a block away, where there was the Hellfire Club, big S and M club. There were lots of gay 
um, clubs. There was a lesbian club, the clit club, but I think the clit club came a little later, than maybe mm-hmm. more like in the 90s or the end of the 80s anyway. So, but, so when I first moved in uh, to this uh, area, it was pretty, you know, it wasn't like it is now. Yeah. It was very different. And this building was very gay. So the next door, there was a um, gay man named Robert Locke, who uh, he became my best male friend. And mm-hmm. next door to him was a woman named Vicky, Vicky Maggio. So the three of us formed like a tight little family. And Robert was a chef, so he used to cook for us. And we were all very close. And, and then when I moved back to the city, I started interviewing for another job. And so I got a job working with two men who were in the oil business. And they had an, a small office on Fifth Avenue. One of them was a petroleum engineer, and the other one was an analyst. Mm-hmm. So I was an assistant in the office. And um, so I worked with them uh, for a while. And they, the part, they, their partnership split up, and uh, and I went stayed working with one of them with the petroleum engineer and then when my mother died and and because i was working with him i had acquired like a um i got a percentage of some deals so i had a little nest egg and then when my a small one but you know when my mother died my mother died in 1979 and that's when i decided to either write or forget my fantasy to be a writer and at the time have you done any writing over that no, past decade? no, nothing beyond like stuff in grammar school and mm-hmm. high school. And, you know, in grammar school, it was like flowery paragraphs about the Blessed Virgin. <laughs> in high school, I edited the school paper, you know, co-edited our, our newspaper. In um, college, I was a, a, the, the news editor in the newspaper, the literary editor of the yearbook so all along I'd been writing but professionally when I got when I was graduated no we're talking about the era of Plato's retreat and I I've gone to a party and I met this man at a party I went back to his place and we became friends he was an art collector but he and he but he was always up for having like a sexy party at his house he always hoped there would be like some kind of orgy so he used to have he used to play the cello naked and and then you know he would invite other people to come and so I used to stay you know you know hang uh, spend evenings with him and at these one of these evenings I met a woman um, who's who called herself Mamselle Vitoire so her her job was she was uh, she had was a soprano she had a beautiful voice but her her job was to be editor of Penthouse Variations so Penthouse had a magazine called Variations which was about people's experience, first experiences with different aspects of sex, different varieties of so, sex. Was it similar to the Pentas Forum? Or yeah, well, it was the same journal-sized magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and uh, but this was like short stories, a bunch of different short stories. One day I said, I said, Mamsel, I called her VK because her name was VK, but we'll just con- stick with Mamsel. So I said, uh, Mamzelle, um, you know, I really want to get into writing, and you're the only person I know who's anywhere near the business. So she says, well, why don't you come up to our offices? I'll explain the format of our stories, and maybe you'll write for us. So I thought, well, okay, you know. I went up, and I thought, well, you know, I, I know that sex is an important part of my life, but then, my, then I understood that it was, and I thought, you know, so I'll learn to write about sex, and, and uh, so that I'll know about it, how to write about it in the future. 
So I wrote a story for them about a man's experience. I wrote it as a, in a male voice about a man's first experiences giving oral sex. And I based it on different men I knew in Wall Street. <laughs> and they bought it. And I thought like, oh, okay. So, so Did they pay well? Oh, see, that was the thing. At the time, they, they paid well. They paid promptly. And they weren't the only uh, place. Mm-hmm. A penthouse paid, I think... For um, an article at the time, I think you got paid like three or four hundred dollars. I mean, they, the time, that's great. You they know? paid within thirty days. Wow. They, you didn't have to wait till publication. They paid on acceptance. Thirty days after acceptance, you got your money. <laughs> and there were a whole bunch of other um, sex magazines mm-hmm. at the time that were being published, and other writers were writing for them. Like l- later on, I met a, a writer named Phil Berger who was my lover for a while, and he had written for magazines like Gallery, and um, uh, there were a whole bunches of them, like, uh, but there was Stag and Swank and Gallery and Hustler, and um, well, there was Penthouse and Playboy, of course, <clears throat> but there were all these, there was High Society, so all these other, you know, mid-level ones, and they all paid. Penthouse paid promptly. Some of them you had to wait till publication, but... But they all paid really pretty well, you know. And so, like for that Adam column, I've got $500 a month from them. And I think, and that was, uh, that was maybe, I don't remember if it was on publication or not, but I was doing it monthly, so it didn't matter. It was, money was coming every month. At one point, I had like three columns in the different penthouse magazines. I had, you know, a section in a penthouse forum, like a, a, a gazette that I edited, I had a column about the X-rated business in Penthouse Hot Talk. So you could actually support yourself. Doing I was like earning twenty six hundred dollars a month just from those, from those three columns. So, so yes, you could support yourself because there was a lot going. You know, there were a lot of magazines mm-hmm. out there. So, and I wasn't even, I lucked. I was lucky because I lucked into it. I I clicked with that with Penthouse. You know, because God forbid if I really had to. Like, Keep out, keep pitching and find new. <laughs> but but um but I think if you, you were a writer, like Phil Berger, when I when when we were together, you know, I met him in two thousand uh, rather in nineteen ninety five and he really showed me what it is to be a writer because he wrote all the time, he wrote all these books and he was like he would recycle everything and you know, like so I realized, like, oh, wow, you know, this is what it's like to really support yourself as a writer. Because I had, you know, I had different things going on, too. Um, you know, like, besides the writing, I had, like, there was a, a man I used to talk to on the phone. This elderly man started when he was, he was 76 years old. He was very educated. He was a judge in his hometown. Uh, he was related to, like, our founding fathers, so he considered himself my, and I, I never met him. We only talked on the phone. He considered my, himself my, uh, my slave, my telephone slave. I considered him my mentor. You know? <laughs> and he would send me all these quotes from different great writers. And, and meanwhile, I would talk him through this whole, you know, sexy story. So that was extra income, too. And the other, like, other, there were other ways, like, Annie and I once, when telephone sex was uh, a new thing, we taped some messages. So the message had to be like, I think it was just like a minute, maybe three minutes long. 
And we didn't even have to write scripts because, you know, we could just tell sexy stories. The last 30 seconds could be orgasm. And we got paid $50. So we could, you know, just go in, record like three or four of these things in this office where we were also working on making a new magazine. We'd make a few of these recordings and go out with the money, you know. So there were a lot of, even when I started the Academy, you know, there were people who um, who wanted to come here or they would call when the, when the word went out and I got a lot of publicity. There were people who would call and for information, but I knew there were a lot of people who were calling who were never going to come here. Either mm-hmm. they were too afraid or they lived too far away or they couldn't afford it. So at the time, there was still telephone uh, sex, telephone you know, services. So I contacted a service that had a good reputation um, that I had found out through some friends of mine, and I made a menu so people could call um, 1-800-MISS-VERA, and they could choose from um, how to share your femme self with your partner, how to put on lipstick, how to walk so in high could, heels. So they could learn. They could learn, learn with the, the phone. Body, yeah. And by the minute. Exactly. And each, each, I made sure each script was like just three minutes. So, and it was two ninety nine a minute. So they could, they could uh, either choose to listen to all eight scripts and spend like, you know, a hundred dollars by listening to, or they could listen to one and spend like five dollars or whatever, you know, whatever it would cost. So they could, you know, decide how much they were going to spend. And then the next day, I would call and I would get my call counts and I remember like walking being on vacation and it was great passive income because I would update the phone line like every week and I, w- I remember being on the beach in uh, with my family in I think North Carolina and just walking on the beach which was like really good sand to walk on and you know getting you know being singing because I had gotten my call counts this morning that morning and it said you know I had a hundred minutes which meant oh last night I made two hundred dollars while I was here at the beach you know (laughs) so so like there were different ways that you could make money in the 70s in the 80s and then even in the 90s and then the telephone you know the telephone uh services cut you know um clamped down on on that so uh, and I and I always had really good people who called because a lot of times you you had to pay if people you know reneged on their bills. But I never I had very le- very little what they call chargebacks. So the bureau that I dealt with, who also dealt with like the New York Times crossword puzzle, if you wanted a crossword puzzle answer, you know, they said <laughs> we want to nominate you for our client of the month. You know, like <laughs> so okay. So but we're getting a little. So that was the academy. But yeah, but the writing. Um, so with the writing, with variations, with meeting Mamselle Vitoire, mm-hmm. what that did, um, I met other people who were, expo- I, well, at that time too, right after I sold my first story, I thought, oh, now I'm a writer, I have to go to Paris, because it was like, oh, I have to be Gertrude Stein and Alex, Alice B. Toklas and wear <laughs> kimonos. So I went to Paris for six months, and um, I wrote a little bit, but it was like, no, I guess I have to go home, because... Were you just enjoying it too much? Yes, yeah. I had a couple of French boyfriends that I stayed with there. So so I thought, yeah, I'm not getting as much writing done as here as I thought. So I came home. And then um, I, through VK, I met other people who were exploring sexuality, mm-hmm. um, one of whom was a man named Marco Vasi, who was also a terrific writer. He's, he'd written a bunch of novels. 
Some One was very autobiographical called The Stoned Apocalypse. And he has a reputation now. You might not have heard of him, but he was... It was said that he had inherited the Nor- the mantle of Norman Mailer, yeah. so he was a really good writer um, and prolific, and wrote about sex phenomenally, and just a really amazing thinker. Mm-hmm. So he had been the editor of Variations um, before VK, and they had been lovers. And this was a time when everybody was lovers with everybody, right? So, um, and so she, when I met him. Uh, I said, well, I really want to learn about S&M, you know, as a, as a former Catholic girl, it like fit right into my life, right? So, but I wanted to know more about it. So he said, well, why don't you come up, you know, I'm going away for the weekend to my place in um, Woodstock. And so why don't you spend the weekend with me? And, you know, I'll teach you, you know, you'll spend the weekend with me. And um, so I went with him to Woodstock and he had a, a motel room there, a very barren place where he wrote, but the two of us went to visit a photographer named Charles Gatewood. <clears throat> and at Charles's place, visiting him that weekend, learning photography, was Annie Sprinkle. So I met Annie that weekend, and we hit it off immediately. Mm-hmm. I remember Charles and, and Marco and I were still in the living room, and Annie came down the steps in baby doll pajamas, and she was carrying all this, these magazines in her lap, in her arms, she had just come back from Europe, where she'd been uh, lovers with Willem de Ritter, who was a an artist in the Fluxus movement, and he'd always encouraged her to think of everything as art. So uh, he later became my mentor as well when he spent time here in New York. But So she had all these magazines, and she dropped them in our laps, and they were all these um, high-production-value European porn magazines, like enemas and all this stuff. <laughs> And so she said, so she said, look what I found, you know, and I looked at all this stuff and I looked at her and I thought, this is a really dedicated pornographer. So we, we became friends then. Did you know who she was already? No. No. Oh, wait, I knew who she was because I knew her about her because VK had mentioned her because VK, VK and her, uh, Mamselle Vitoire and her, there, there was a little, Mamselle didn't like her very much. I think because she, Mamsel was very Victorian, and I think she thought of Annie as a little slutty. And also, I think there was a little competition, mm-hmm. you know, as far as the men in our circle, in the circle. At the start time, the circle was, but there was a group called Armut Press. So it was Charles Gatewood, photographer, Spiderweb, the tattoo artist, Marco Vasi, the writer, and VK, who was Mamsel Vitoire and Annie, and then I became part of that. There was a poet named uh, Ivory also, and Michael Perkins, who was the dirty book editor at Screw Magazine. He used to edit, uh, not editor, but uh, critic. He used to write all the reviews and had an amazing library in Woodstock of all these books that were sent to him for review. So um, that was the group that was Armut Press. So that's how I'd heard about Annie, but we hadn't, we hadn't met, and so, um, yeah. So, but I hit it off more with her than uh, BK, and I are still friends to this day as well. But it was Annie and I who became best friends, and then Annie was like my guide into the whole world of sex. You know, because I was I'm seven years older than her, but I was like had led such a different sheltered life, and. Um, uh, and she liked me because I was always like the classy one, you know, and she, I think she liked that, um, that I liked her and I, you know, 
I had, so it was a really good, good match, you know, the two of us. So we started making, you know, she was already making some homemade magazines and things. So I started doing that, working with her, uh, making the homemade magazines, which if you go like to the, you haven't gone to the Leslie Lomas show yet. No, I haven't gone yet. But I saw one, I saw one magazine that you guys had done together, Love. Yeah, and the love on, magazine. Online, mm-hmm. just like looking around. Uh, the first thing we worked on was this. Annie Sprinkle's ABC uh-huh. study of le- sexual lust and deviation. Right, she'd already had that in mind, so then I helped with, I wrote the poems with her, and, and the photographs in there are from all from her collection. So then, after I met Annie and mm-hmm. went to a party, and I met someone at a party who was an editor. Um, it was like a, a birthday party for a friend, mm-hmm. and it was a wild party. And so I met there a person who was editing um, Adam. Mm. He was a gay man who'd you know, been invited to the party. And he thought that my exploits were pretty interesting. By then, you know, I'd been like going to the Hellfire Club. And uh, I had made a, a, uh, an X-rated movie with Annie. She had been lovers with Gerard Damiano, who directed Deep mm-hmm. Throat. And one day at the apart- her apartment, because we used to hang out at her apartment, she said, oh, Jerry's coming over, and so maybe you want to, you know, I'm going to discuss my movie idea with him, so do you want to stay? And I was curious to meet him, but I thought, like, ooh, I don't know, it's like a little close now because I don't, I don't want to make a movie, you know, that's like, that's different from writing a story, you know? And until then, I think I'd, I'd posed, did a, like a naked photo of my, like I've been photographed from the waist up naked, or from the waist, neck down naked. I'm trying to think of, I think I hadn't, hadn't whether the Maplethorpe came before meeting Jerry or after, because there was, you know, it, it's all kind of like happened around the same time, because, but I think, yeah, I think the Maplethorpe photos came first. So... I saw some photos in the Village Voice mm-hmm. that that were taken by Maplethorpe, and I thought they were beautiful, and they were of a naked black man, and I thought, oh, this man, you know, wants to this take, you know, he takes great photos, treating the body with such reverence, and I bet he could take great pictures of sex, and I thought, and I want to be in them, mm-hmm. you know. I arranged with a friend to go to a, a photo a slideshow that Robert was doing in the church in the village of uncut penises. <laughs> so, or I think it was called the black male penis or something, which I figured would all be mostly uncut. So, so we went and I met Robert and I brought actually a copy of the Love magazine with me. Mm-hmm. And when I went, to, we went to his apartment afterwards because my friend Dennis Florio knew him and they had, they had hung out together at Max's Kansas City when they were both like new kids in New York. And so um, when he saw the Love magazine and, and in his apartment on um, Bleecker Street, all these crosses, and I felt like, oh, it's a Catholic boy, you know? So there were pictures in the Love that have like, uh, there's, is there an academy for my kind of art? And there's pictures of me like worship in front of a saint, like looking for. So he said, oh, would you model for me sometime? And that was exactly what I wanted. So it took a while for him to call me a few months, several months later, but he called and he said, you know, very timidly, he said, I'm photographing a black man and he wants to be photographed with a woman. Would you, you know, we, we talked about it. He said, do you want to, would you consider doing a shoot with him? And he said, you know, I could pay you 
um, or I could give you prints. And I thought, oh, what is he going to offer me? Probably not much money. And I was much more interested in the prints. So I said, oh, I'll take the prints. (laughs) Smart idea. Yes, it turned out to be a very smart idea. So that was, you know, that was that modeling session. And then I had a lover who was a visiting policeman from Toronto. He was white, but he had a great bottom, you know. So I called Robert and I said, I'm I'm dating this uh, policeman. And I said, he's got a great butt. I said, I think it needs to be immortalized. So then we did a second shoot. And um, from that, you know, I got more prints. And he gifted me with a portrait that he took just as part of another shot, but mm-hmm. he made, turned it into a portrait. So, and then I, I worked with a couple other art photographers, like Joel Peter Witkin. Mm-hmm. So that was like how I was like... What, what did you do with Joel Peter Witkin? Because I normally think of his art as so, you know... Yes, what, marked photographs. Yeah. Well, we did, we did what he wanted, but we also... Actually, I think I have one of them here. Um, I always wanted to do a photo like we did the I think I wore a hood mm. and like had some dildos in my arms you know um, and he marked it up so that was his thing but then I, I wanted to do something where so I slicked my hair back and this was his jacket mm-hmm. and this was a piece of furniture they had at the gallery this was at Robert Samuel gallery in my boots so oh and that's a rosary bead around my neck and there are other ones from that shoot too so that's that one um so i got several from there so yes and those were that was all before i made a movie and then you met jerry at yeah so we had two so jerry came and so annie had this idea where um we do a like a kind of quasi documentary where everybody would play themselves Mm -hmm. and i was just going to interview the people because that's what i'd been doing i'd been you know writing articles interviewing people about their sex lives. I interviewed all the people who worked in Times Square. I interviewed construction workers about their sex lives and maybe different order, but um, but that was, you know, like I would do a lot of interviewing. And so we were going to host the movie together, but I wasn't going to perform sex in the movie. But at one point, we were just, um, there was a scene going on and Annie and I were like, off to the side, we're in, wearing lingerie and we're just watching it on Jerry's directing. It's all taking place in Annie's apartment. And Mark Stevens, who was called Mr. Ten and a Half because mm-hmm. he had a large penis, this, it, the scene was he was supposed to be watching, he was a husband watching his girlfriend and his wife and his, her, her lover have sex. And he was gay and he had this, the, the woman. <laughs> was sort of, you know, he was calling her his wife, but he was definitely gay. So it was sort of, sort of true to life, but sort of, you know, just made up for the movie. So and he's stroking himself over here and they're having sex. And I don't know what possessed me, but I just decided to jump in and start sucking his cock. And, you know, and the camera was on, but I was like keeping my face turned away. <laughs> but I felt like, oh, you know, I felt like really... Um, you know, it, it was, like, fun to do that, you know, to jump You'd into the scene. You'd been, like, completely against doing it before? Yeah, I wasn't. And so, but I didn't consider that I was really in there because I knew I was hiding my face. And then later, Annie was doing a scene with her lover, Michael Cycle. And my and that was a, a real lover of hers, a motorcycle guy at the time. And 
So she, uh, and Michael was one of these guys who said, oh, yeah, I can perform in the movie, you know, like, I, I can do that. But of course, it was a different story with the crew around and the lights. Oh, God, yeah. So they're having sex and he's having problems getting it up. And so Jerry herded everyone who was not essential to the scene into the back bedroom. And I was like, I was like, had sort of my nose out of joint. And I thought, oh, I'm supposed to be co-hosting the movie. You know, why am I in the back? (laughs) And so, but, and Annie is out there and she's thinking, she was thinking, all of a sudden I hear her voice go, Veronica. And, and, and I realized like, oh, she's calling me into the scene. And she's, she, cause she's thinking if I jump into the scene, Michael's going to be like, you know, so thrown off with two women in the scene that he's going to forget about his dick and just get it up. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, this is my moment of truth. And I've written about this. So, so I decided, okay, I'm just going to go for it. And I jumped into the scene. And so that was, you know, that was like my first official sex scene. What movie was that? That's called Consenting Adults. Okay. Yeah. And then because I jumped into that scene, so then in that we decided that I would have my own scene which we filmed in this apartment sometime later. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, that was how I popped my porn cherry, as they say. And and then after that, like, I was still, I was more interested in writing. I kind of thought porn films were silly. You know, it was fun to be in them, mm-hmm. but, you know, the scripts always seemed so dopey. And I think there was still quite a bit of the Catholic girl in me, so I didn't really want to, like, get be too much out there known for that. So... Um, so anyway, I made a few um, movies after that, a few kinky videotapes with, because um, with my friend Mistress Antoinette, who I'd also met. At, Annie had the Sprinkle Salon, which would, she would invite people to come to her place. It was a real meeting place. She had a, a you know, a one bedroom apartment at ninety Lexington Avenue. Mm-hmm. So sometime after that, then I guess well, okay, so that was early eighties. Then mid eighties, like nineteen eighty six, because um, now I'm like writing for Adam and you know, uh, writing for different magazines, um, having my adventures, and now AIDS hits, and oh, and the other thing was though, Robert and I were like really good friends. So at one point in eighty two, eighty three, he I had invi- he was from Australia, and I had invited him to spend the holidays with my family in New Jersey. And then one day he came to me and he said, well, you know, I've spent Christmas with your family now. Why don't you spend Christmas with mine? And we kind of laughed at first because his parents, they lived in Australia. Mm-hmm. But I took down the globe and we started planning like, oh, well, what would the trip be like? And he'd made, he'd circled the globe several times. So we planned this trip. Uh, to visit like 16 different cities in different countries, not in Europe at all, but in um, South America, in in Asia, in uh, Africa. And and I said, yeah, okay. And he was an amateur photographer. He had a Hasselblad. And he like, I said, okay, so and you could photograph me in six sexy outfits in all these different places. And, and I'll write the stories and, you know, we'll sell it back to the magazines when we come back and, you know, we'll make our money back. And so it took a while. So we did that. We did that trip. And it took a while for, for me to hook up. Actually, that was how one of the ways I hooked up with Penthouse. So I sold a six-part series to them, an erotic mm-hmm. adventure with Max's photos. And we made our money back. But we had gone to like uh, Rio de Janeiro, Nairobi, Manila. And we were 
and you were having sexual crazy experiences yes. in all these places to in order to write them or well no some of them I didn't like overdo it yeah. I mean some of it was just like doing it because it was fun to mm-hmm. have sex there yeah. so the only one where I really cheated was India because I didn't really have sex with India the Indian the men in India were very um misogynist you know like I really learned there that um you I had to ask get Robert to ask for everything because mm. the the Indian men didn't want to hear from me, you know they just uh, so said yeah you know you you just you get us the extra blanket in the hotel you know so so we went on that trip around the world and then that sounds amazing it was an amazing trip and so yeah and the story it was really fun to write the stories and then in eighty five Robert was diagnosed with AIDS and I thought okay how are we going to get through this and he was my best male friend we were really close. So at the time, I had also, Annie and I were, were going away to, um, to spend a week with Linda Montano, performance artist Linda mm-hmm. Montano. And so the first night I was there, I had this dream about Robert, because uh, the day I left, he was going to get his first jolt of radiation for uh, Kaposi's sarcoma. And I, so I told him, like, oh, Linda and Annie, I said, I'm worried about Robert. And, and I said, I've even thought about marrying him. And at first I said it as a joke, but by the end of the week there, I thought, why not? Why not celebrate what we have instead of worrying about what's going to come? So when I got home, I proposed to Robert, and he knew I was serious, and we had a wedding out here in the courtyard of our building. We got married in October 87, and then in April of uh, 88, he went home to visit his dad in Australia, because his dad had cancer, but he got off the plane and... um, he wound up in the hospital right away. And so then in June, Vicky and I went to Australia to be with Robert, and he died in, at the end of June in Australia. So then when I came home, I said, oh, it's going to be really weird having someone else live next door because these two apartments are connected by a balcony outside. All, every two apartments on that face here mm. have that connection. So someone said, oh, but you were married to Robert. You know, you have rights to that apartment. And... And I didn't think so, but I hired an attorney, and the attorney argued that we were a family, and the two apartments were our family unit. And so, and it, real estate was not hot at the time, and so I got a lease on that apartment. So, and that's where I started the academy. Mm-hmm. So, for, at first, Vicky and I shared it. She was an uh, an illustrator, so she had her illustration desk up on the platform area, mm-hmm. and I had the uh, my writing desk down here because it's a mirror apartment. Um, and then Vicky decided she was going to move, and at the time the academy was heating up, so I took over the whole place as the academy, and we trained, you know, the deans at the time, and I transformed it. She was my first assistant dean. She was my first. She was Miss Vicky. I still use her name there um, when writing to students sometimes. So that's where the academy started. So I always think of Robert as the a patron saint of oh, our academy. That's so wonderful that you were able to be with him. You know, so closely, like, for the last... Well, that was why I propo- proposed, because when my mother died, and I, that's why I think, like, we're we're guided in life as much by death, you know, because when my mother died, I wasn't there. I had been working, you know, in Utah with the petroleum um, engineer for several months, and I was coming home, and it was my birthday, and she was vacuuming, cleaning the house, and she died over the vacuum cleaner while she was getting ready to like, oh, wow. to have a birthday party, right? 
So, so I never had closure with her. And when Robert was ill, that was, that was what I thought. I remembered that feeling of like that punched in the stomach feeling of no closure. And I thought if Robert's going to die, which at that time, if you had AIDS, you were going to die. And you were going to die. If you were lucky, you'd live two years, you know. Mm. So I thought if he's going to die, I want to make sure he knows he's loved. And so that's what I felt like, well, how can I show him that I really love him? How can I make sure he knows he's loved? Because he wasn't out to his parents. He was out to his brothers, his brothers and sister, but he wasn't out to his parents. And I think, you know, sometimes when we're not out, there's part of it that doesn't believe we're loved or, or that we're worthy of love, you know? So, um, so that was why I decided, okay, you know, let, so let, we'll have this wedding and, and there was a point at the wedding where, you know, everyone just went in the conga line and hugged him and hugged him and hugged him. So, so that was like really, um, that was a way I could have closure, and, you know, with Robert. And I always say that that was like the best thing I ever did for anybody else, but it was also the best thing I ever did for me, you know. And at the time I was, you know, I was, we all, the, the porn stars and I, Annie and Candida, you know, we had a, we were all, we had a, a porn star support group and we all shared the same therapist. We all went to the same therapist. <laughs> and after I got married to Robert for a while, I quit therapy because I thought, I, I felt like so full. I thought, I don't need therapy right now, you know, because it was such a feeling of, ah, oh, okay, I have accomplishment, you know, like sending someone I, lo- I love off with such a, and the, you know, and so, and that really, I colored my life because then the next, when I met Phil Berger, who was a, a great love of my life, uh, when I met him, I met him in like a 95, and, you know, it just, start, we, you know, I wasn't planning to, he was like so different from other men that I'd been with. I'd always been with flashy guys. I'd always been with like unavailable guys. I'd always been with like sex, a lot of, well, they weren't all from the sex business, but Phil was, you know, he was a hardworking writer. He was like not a flashy guy at all. He was jeans. But we went to a play together, and at that, and it was about someone who had gone been in hospitals, and he, and he said, oh, after the play, he said, oh, I hate stories about hospitals, and I said, oh, you sound like you've been in one, and he said, yeah, and I said, oh, was it for something serious? He said, yeah. I said, was it cancer? And he said, yeah. I said, oh, and he had been diagnosed with colon cancer like the year before. So that was when I thought, uh-oh, you know, um, maybe I have to think about whether I want to be with this person because he was, like, having CAT scans, like, every mm-hmm. six months. So I thought, well, you know, I've, I've been through that before. Hopefully he, he, the cancer won't come back and he'll be fine. But I lived through Robert dying, and so I know what that's like to be at someone's bedside. And if, God forbid, Phil should die, I know I can get through it. So I stayed with Phil, and five or six years later, after we had wonderful times together and dream come true times, my first book, his movie was produced, colon cancer came back. So I was his care partner, and then he died. And then, you know, I really wasn't dating very much until, and he died in 2001, and then I didn't really date too much until, uh, I'd been dated a little bit, but it was really 2007 when I met Stu, who was 18 years younger than me and was supposed to live outlast me and be there for me. But, you know, fate, fate changed that. Wow, yeah. to have been to 
the end of life partner for three people is yeah I, mean, I can't imagine going through that yeah and that's why I say like sometimes you know it's like it's like death can be so influential in mm. in life and a lot of times when people come here sometimes you know I ask them like well, you know when I find out what's going on with them because sometimes it'll be like they had a near you know they had a near death thing with an illness or someone really close to them died or they had a divorce or there's something you know that that made them take that step and you know start to feel like okay let me find out more about this about who I am you know because I'm not going to live forever just you know? like you with your mother and deciding to go start writing exactly exactly she was the first one that was my first brush with mortality and that changed my life yeah. so. how did AIDS affect your work and the sex scene in New York? How did, you know? Well, the sex, uh, you know, people started, not everyone was using condoms, you know, like a lot of all the, then the sex places, a lot of them started closing down. Um, first, they had monitors around to make sure there was no unprotected sex or so, but then, you know, that kind of put a damper on everything. And then with the, like the gay clubs, they just started really pressure getting pressure to close and you know so people were very afraid yeah people were very afraid and pe- the other thing was people people were dying left and right everyone was affected this building there were so many people who died in this building you know because this building used to be mostly all gay men gay men and some single and single women and um, it wasn't until after aids that couples started moving in and of course real estate went up too but so it took more you know people but but yeah this building was only one of many places that got devastated by AIDS you know and there were groups you know I, I was very active in sex workers rights so sex workers were always you know fighting for the right to use condom and so sex work like we worked with Pony we did Pony was Prostitutes of New York, a sex workers' rights group that I was involved in. We did um, art pieces with ACT UP. ACT UP was the, you know, the group here in town. Mm-hmm. So you know, there was a lot of activism, a lot of activism. GMHC started, and I belonged to a group called the Healing Circle. And that's actually how I met the person who helped me start the academy, because... Annie and my, the friend Dennis, who introduced me mm-hmm. to Maplethorpe, they were going. They started going to a group on 16th Street called the New York Healing Circle. So this was now we're talking. So we're talking like mid 80s. And it was for people affected was, by AIDS. It was a lot of it was a lot of gay men who were HIV positive. Some women who were HIV positive. People who'd partied hard in the 80s and were looking for a more spiritual path. Mm. It started off in some one of these things that started off like in someone's living room with a half mm-hmm. dozen people, and it became like 300 people who met every Tuesday night at the um, on on West 16th Street at St. Francis School, and they were, you know, it was very much um, they were into the teaching of Louise Hay and Bernie Siegel, all those people who teach you can heal your own life. And it was very spiritual practice and um, very loving, Mm -hmm. you know, all about love and lots of singing and, you know, and sharing. So I wasn't so, and Annie and and Dennis were going to this group. I wasn't so interested in going to the group until I heard they were taking a smaller group to the island of Jamaica. And they were going to spend the holidays at 
um, a place called Firefly, which was the home of Noel Coward. And I had been there um, with a boyfriend years before, and I thought it was the most beautiful place. And so I thought, oh, hmm, (laughs) that was sounded interesting to me. So I, I, I signed up for this trip. And I think it was about 20 people, 20 of us from the Healing Circle. And one of the people, it was me and Annie and then a few other women and the rest, like I think there were four women and about 16 guys or, you know, the per- that was sort of the percentage. Maybe there were more people, but that was still the percentage, a smaller amount of women. One of the women was a woman named JoLynn White. And JoLynn had been helping cross-dressers with their hair and makeup. She had gone the whole route. I think she'd been a dominatrix for done it in a dominant style for a while, but then she'd got become more spiritual. So she was on this trip. After we came back from the trip, and we had an amazing time, all of us together, over um, that New Year's weekend, or that Christmas, New Year's holiday. And then she called me one day and she said, Veronica, you know, I know you have connections in the world of fantasy. And she said, I, she said, I've had, <coughs> I've been helping cross-dressers. And she said, I now want to, I'm going to California. I want to study with a Reiki master. And meanwhile, I have this person who wants to come to New York and stay dressed for a whole weekend. Um, and she said, I, I just don't have, that's not where my head is at right now. So she said, but I thought maybe you'd want to talk to him. So I talked to this person on the phone. He was a 38-year-old attorney, worked for the government, actually. And he, but he identified as a, uh, a 23-year-old, what he called a bimbo, named, and he called her uh, Jamie Sissy Ribbons. So I talked to him on the phone, and I made sure that he didn't want to be forced to dress or humiliated, because I knew all about those scenes because of my own explorations. And I said, well, you know, there was an event coming up called the Dressing for Pleasure Ball. And it was a gala where people could dress in, you know, leather or or cross dress or whatever. They wanted to wear rubber. And there were workshops at, I think, the Hotel Pennsylvania. So I said, if you come to town for that weekend, we can make the ball the focal point. And meanwhile, you know, Annie was still in town. She hadn't moved out of town. I said, you know, my friend Annie can photograph you. You know, we'll, I'll, we'll turn, we can turn you into a centerfold star. You know, we can do a photo shoot. I'll organize a whole weekend for you. But you have to give me a budget because I know I can't do the makeup. I need help. So I asked him for, you know, a good hefty budget. And thankfully he went for it. And so we had a great weekend together. And, um, and then after he left, Joe uh, jo Lynn said, wow, you did such a great job with Jamie. I'm, I have a few other clients that I'm leaving behind. Maybe you'll work, you want to work with them. So it was just a handful of people. Like, I don't think she had too many, or maybe she just didn't want to give up too many, but just a handful of people that I worked with for a year. And meanwhile, I started writing the memoir. And I was really liking to to write and not have short deadlines. Mm-hmm. So like I had with my Adam column. So I thought, well, what can I do to like increase my finances? So I'll have, I'll save my writing energy for the book and not, you know, not for a lot of columns. So I thought maybe I'll look to increase the work with cross-dressers because I was good at it. I was enjoying it. And I knew there were places I could advertise because at the time there were a couple of newspapers. One was called Transvestian and another was um, Feminine. And they were like tabloids that cross-dressers read. 
So I placed an ad in um, these magazines, and then the phone started to ring. And I billed it as, I didn't call it, at that point I called it the ooh-la-la cross-dressing academy. <laughs> and so um, the phone started to ring, and all these people, they wanted the same things. They all wanted, they didn't want to be parodies of women. They didn't want to be drag queens. They wanted to be Miss Real. And I thought, well, what these people want is not impossible, but they need a school. They need, mm-hmm. you know, they need lessons in this stuff. And that's when, that's when I came up with, they need a finishing school. And every finishing school is Miss This or Miss That. And I already had a nickname, Miss Vera, from my friend Michael O'Donoghue, who actually was a head, the head writer for Saturday Night Live when it first started. He used to call me Miss Vera all the time, because he liked to dress up too. So Miss Vera's finishing school, but not for girls, for boys who want to be girls. And once I had the name, that was a stroke of genius, which I'll be forever grateful for. So that, because it really put it out there, you know, there was no beating around the bush. It was, it was, you know, right to the point and it was fun, mm-hmm. you know, it made it fun. So I worked, I had that name and then I was trying to advertise in the back pages of New York Magazine at the time. They had, you know, personal classifieds. So they weren't taking my ad, you know, at first. They didn't want to know about cross-dressing. And I even tried to like camouflage the ad. They said, "No, no, we know what you're doing, and you know we're not we're not going to advertise that." So meanwhile, they were advertising for all these massage services that were ending, you know, happy endings and escorts with, but no cross dressers, no. So I had printed up these really cool brochures. The first ones were just like Xeroxes, but they were well designed. So this was a this was an early brochure, but the, I mean this was after I got them printed, you know, offset, but. But this was similar to the first ones. And where did you put these out? Well, what happened was I met someone. There's a a pop-up book in the show downtown at Leslie Mm -hmm. Lohman. And I was working with this artist on the pop-up book. And he was dating someone who came to his house that day, who turned out to be a friend of mine for years, Amy. So Amy that day had um, come out with like a shampoo She's a she's a you know a real smarty pants too. She was a Yale Business School graduate or a Yale graduate anyway, but I didn't realize how smart she was or you know much about her. But she'd come out with a a shampoo called um, there was a new saint, someone who was being considered for sainthood mm-hmm. called Saint Toussaint, and so and he had been a hairdresser in I think Haiti. So she came out with a shampoo called Saint Toussaint's Miracle Shampoo. And she'd been on like Channel 7 that day. So she came to visit me and she saw the brochures. And so she showed it to a friend of hers who was a freelance reporter. And he, at the time, at the time he was freelance, his name was George Rush. He usually later became like, he had a column called Russian Malloy with his wife. But at that time he was freelance. New York Magazine was one of his clients, you know, used to write for New York. So he took the brochure. I guess I had scheduled that I was going to have a party for the academy. And some of the students, Jennifer in that picture there, and some of the other, two of the other students mm-hmm. wanted to be French maids at the party and wear these cute little outfits. So New York Magazine asked if they could, also, they could send a reporter and a photographer. So I asked the maids if they would mind being photographed. So two of the, Jennifer and another of the maids said, okay. One of them said, just my legs. So, so New York Magazine came to the party. And so then they wrote a full page story about the Academy in, um, 
in New York, in New York. When it came out, the day it came out, I called back the back pages and I said, "Okay, now I want to advertise my school." And they said, "We know you who you are. We told you, you know, you can't." And I said, "Well, why don't you look at page 32 of your own magazine?" And so then I got my ads in. So, but that started a whole ball, roll of, you know, the and publicity was, rolling. Was the publicity mostly positive or what? Oh, yeah. And how did the book come about? Oh, now the book, okay, so that's a great story too. Um, I got a call from someone at, um, I think it was Simon & Schuster. After the publicity came out, we started getting more publicity. So an editor from, I think it was Simon & Schuster, one of these publishing houses called and asked me if I wanted to do a book. So I said, yeah, I already had in mind to do a book. You know, I thought the, I always saw the Academy as the book, the show, the movie, the home shopping club, right? <laughs> so I wrote an outline and I sent it to the editor and he, he really liked it. And he said, oh, this is great. And, you know, I will, uh, you know, now I'll pass it on. I said, but I think it's going to be fine. But then he called me back later and he said, oh, well, we think that um, uh, maybe you'd like to write work with a, another writer, you know, we're thinking like maybe Michael Musto. And I thought, I don't know, let Michael Musto get his own book. I don't want this to have a gay take on it, you know, like smart aleck gay take. So I said no. And I thought, okay, I need to get my own writing more out there. Maybe they haven't been reading Adam magazine. That's what exactly what I thought, you know, it was like my nose was definitely bent out of shape. I thought another writer. So at the time I used to read The Observer a lot. And I, I always liked the writing there. And there was a reporter who came from The Observer undercover. His name is Rich Cohen. He's done books since then. He's did Tough Jews. So he came up as a student to the Academy. And so we transformed him. And then later he came back just before the story was coming out, because I didn't know he was from the paper, and he confessed. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry. This article's going to come out, and I think you're going to like it. He said, but I just had to confess. He said, I was... I, he said, I was so, like, you know, I hated to be doing that to you, but he said, um, but I think you're going to like the article. So the article came out. After it came out, I decided, okay, I'm going to pitch the editor at The Observer. So I had a, a lunch with him, and I proposed a few different articles. And I had also read in The New Yorker that um, New York Magazine, that um, Doubleday was issuing a new edition of the Amy Vanderbilt Etiquette book. And I had a collection of etiquette books, small collection, because I liked, I liked reading them. I liked them for the maid. You know, at the time when I first started the academy, a lot of students wanted to be little maids because that was the image they found in adult bookstores mm. when they went looking to find out, like, you know, who am I, you know? So one of the things I pitched to him was to review this new edition of the Amy Vanderbilt etiquette book, and that was the one he liked. So... I contacted the person who it said was editing the book, and her name was Nancy Tuckerman. So I called her and I said, you know, I was going to write the review of the book for The Observer. And I said, you know, when I'm being interviewed, I'd like to know where people are coming from, um, you know, when they interview me. So I'll tell you a little bit about me. I have this school and, you know, and I and that's my interest in maids and and etiquette and so I wrote the review of the book and afterwards she called me up and she said Veronica our publicity department loves this review and they really help think it's going to help sell the book and I wrote it as you know coming from the voice of Miss Vera of the finishing school so anyway and then she said and by the way what is that book school you've got so so I said well Nancy I said as a matter of fact I've got a whole book proposal you know for this school 
So she says, well, send it over to me. She said, I'm not an editor here, but I know everybody. So if I think it'll work here, I'll send it on to an editor. And I didn't know, but she was like the director of publicity of Doubleday at the time. And she was the one who had been, was best friends with Jackie O. And she had invited, had invited Jackie O to come to Doubleday, mm-hmm. to work at Doubleday. I sent her over the proposal to her, which was the same proposal that I had given to the first guy. But that guy, that publishing house, they were in the midst of a takeover at the time. And so it was a time, I think, when a lot of people were afraid to say yes to anything, Mm -hmm. right? So I sent over the proposal and she called me back like uh, the next day or practically the next day and said, oh, I passed it on to this editor. He thought it was a real coup that we got the material. He knew all about your school. And she said, I'm not sure how long it's going to take, but I think, you know, you're going to be hearing something. We're on the right track now. And this fellow, his name was Bruce Tracy, and he was a real publishing guy. The first ad guy who had contacted me, he was from real estate. He'd gotten into publishing from real estate. Bruce was a different story. Bruce was a real editor and still is a real editor. So he became, he was the editor of my first book, and he asked questions that helped make this book much better than it would have been and he was he was a great editor to have and then with my second book it was because of him also he contacted me um when ebooks were going to be a thing mm-hmm. and then he said uh, oh we're, we're establishing a new ebook division and you have a niche market and we're thinking you know that you could do an ebook for us so that was my second book miss vera's cross dress for success mm-hmm. and what happened was ebooks were slower to take off than they thought now of course they're big but so it was only going to have a small print run but then it wound up having a bigger print run because it turned out like oh okay well maybe ebooks are not going to turn um, that fast the third one is Miss Vera's Cross-Gender Fun for All, and that came out in 2016. Did it fulfill your dreams of being a writer? Uh, yes and no, you know, like yes and no. I feel like I always wish I had started the book earlier, you mm-hmm. know, because <laughs> it you know, take, gets you to sometimes it's... You know, you plan, like you have a year, year to write it, but then it's, you really don't start writing it till six months. And then it's like, oh, why didn't I start this, like, you know, in the very beginning. And then the the harder work really comes in the in the uh publicizing it later and getting it out there. So, um but yeah, no, this I love this book. I love this book especially because I wrote about a lot of where I come from is in this book. Mm-hmm. You know, um so and then this book was written at a harder time because um that was when Phil Phil was ill. So he had died and then then I was really, you know, so it was part of it. I started when he was dying and then finished it, you know, when I was on my own. So this was like a lifesaver book to be able to do. I guess being able to write, like, to have it be, to have more books out there, that would mm-hmm. be the dream come true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, instead of like a, an initial print run of 15,000, mm-hmm. you know, and an initial print run, run of at least 100,000, 200,000, that would be nice, you know. That would help it to be more of a dream come true. Yeah. But, but it's pretty great to, um, you know, to have it published. And to have it published and to be working with such dedicated people too, like, Bruce was a great first editor to have, you know. Yeah, it was a great experience. So, and yeah, and it's like your book is your calling card. Have you ever written a book yet? Yeah. 
Yeah, so you know, your book is your calling card, you know. It's- I didn't even get an advance. It was like, I got paid nothing, but I spent so much money towards it, basically. But I can uh, at least say, yeah, here, here I, I am. am. Yes, yeah. Order me on Amazon. Exactly. <laughs> so what's your book? It's a biography of a fashion designer named Thea Porter. Ah, okay, right. I think I read that because I did read up, you know, something um, about you. Because that's my, sort of my, I guess, my background is fashion history. Mm-hmm. But then I've sort of expanded it to cover all aspects of sort of cultural history. I hope to write more books as well. I understand that completely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so now I feel like, I could, oh, okay, gotta, you know, get the memoir done. And I have like, you know, a lot of st- things that I've written already. So I have like f- about four of these. These are, you know, these are the Adam columns. So here's like the years that I did them. And the. so this was the article that Jared wrote about me. And then, wow, it's a great... Very central cover, but it's amazing. <laughs> Veronica Vera, hottest woman in New York. Yeah. Mm. This is Club 90, our support group, and where we did a show in a feminist festival called Carnival Knowledge mm. that asked the question, is there, a, um, is there a feminist pornography? So we reenacted one of our support group meetings, and we did a, a show called Deep Inside Porn Stars. See, there's so much, so much to say. Yeah, that's why I have to write the book. Mm-hmm. So these are my best friends. But now there's now um, Candida and Gloria have died, and um, me and Annie and Jane are left. How did um, Club Ninety come about in the first? Okay, place? so when, okay, so this is Jane. Mm-hmm. So she was pregnant with her first son. I was coming back from traveling with Robert mm-hmm. on our around the world trip. And um, in August, there was going to be a baby shower for Jane. So the baby shower was all women from the sex industry, except for one guy who was a bodybuilder, who was our, our maid. <laughs> so, so we had this baby shower. And then at the end of the baby shower, and we're talking about there were dominatrices, escorts, um, writers, you know, all women who worked mm-hmm. in some, because there were a lot of ways you could work in sex. So at the end, someone put on West Side Story and we all started dancing around and singing. We found that everybody had been to dancing school. Everybody had these different ambitions that didn't involve sex work at all. And so, excuse me, there was an idea that, oh, we should get together again and really, you know, really get to know each other. And it wasn't until like several months later, Annie was having like this crisis. She was dating this guy who was like really uh, anti-sex business and wanted her to like get out of the business. And she was on the phone with Gloria. And, and so they thought like, well, we, used, we said we'd get together. Maybe, you know, we'll see who else wants to get together and talk about, you know, what's, what the effect of being in movies has had on our lives. So, at, so we had... Club night, so we they we called together this meeting. They called together this meeting, and uh, it was the seven that you saw in the picture who came together. And um, so we started meeting on a regular basis. But after we did this show, which came very early, you know, into the time we met, um, after we did the show, Kelly and Sue. This is Sue, mm-hmm. and Kelly is was here. Mm-hmm. They were still making movies. The others of us were had we were really not interested in making movies so much anymore. So they were still living the porn star life and they so they weren't really so interested in examining their lives. <laughs> so 
So they left the group, but the rest of us continued on. And we called the club, it called the Club 90, because we first met at Annie's apartment, which was 90 Lex. Mm. So it was Club 90. And so at the time, we were all living in New York. We, could, we were meeting like every six weeks. And then gradually, you know, I, I think Jane moved to Los Angeles first. Annie moved to San Francisco. Gloria moved to L.A. and Florida and whatever. So then it was me and Candace in the New York area. And so we would meet online. By then we could meet online, and then we would have different reunions whenever we could. Um, and sometimes the reunions would just be four of us, or sometimes mm. it would be three of us. We didn't have that many that were five of us, but one time when it was five of us was when Stu and I got married. Yeah, we were all there, Club 90, I had Club 90 Bridesmaids. Yeah. That's so lovely. Yeah. So it never expanded to be like a support group for other members no, who never joined up? No, although, well, by that time, too, the business was mainly in, in Los mm-hmm. Angeles. And there was a group that started in Los Angeles. So I think they did start, but I, but they, I don't know that they can, they didn't really continue on like we did. I mean, we've, we've been continuing now for like 83, like 40 years, 35 years. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And James Sons, you know, this, like there was, a, there was a Cabbage Patch doll we were using at the time, but her sons are now nearly 40 years old, so she has two sons now. So. What a great, I mean, it sounds like really great friendships. Yeah, know? yeah. I mean, we really, it's, you know, of course expanded to more than, you know, the effect sex that are being on film on camera. And it's like we've gone through weddings and deaths and, you know, highs and lows mm-hmm. of our lives. Yeah, it's, it's a very special thing. And we do try, we always encourage other people to, um, to form support groups, you know, when, we, when we're invited to talk. And like we, we gave a talk, there's a, there's a sex conference called um, Catalyst Con. So we were like keynotes at Catalyst Con. And, um, and we, you know, we encouraged the people out there who were, a lot of them were either educators or porn stars or something involved in set, but forming set, you know, support groups. And, you know, and I encourage my students here to, like, you know, join a support group. So there's a support group here in town for cross-dressers and transgender people. Mm-hmm. So, and, yeah, and as far as fashion, I mean, you know, that's... I've always... When I first started the Academy, it's like... I always felt like the fashion industry kind of fell down on, you know, it's like was never really very supportive. I mean, even now, like, they're supportive by hiring transgender models, but in terms of, like, really designing clothes, it's only now, even now it could be more, but, you know, to just have more fashions that are, you know, that are more crossing gender lines, you know, you don't just, there could be so much. The only, I remember in the first book I write about, like, Giorgio, not Giorgio Armani, Gianni Versace. Mm-hmm. I always thought like, yeah, it's Gianni Versace, okay. And of course, you know, then um, Gautier and trying to get skirts and, and stuff, but Versace with his beautiful prints and stuff, I thought. So, and I like, uh, I, it's hard to, for me to say her name, but uh, Renee Kanuba, wait. I, oh, Rhea Kawakubo. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. She's got very whimsical bodysuit kind of things going on. And, so I always like look out for things like that, but 
you know, the students, who, the people who come here, they're still very much like last, yesterday I had a student, we took her shopping, she really loved buying her female clothes. She said, oh, in her male persona, she doesn't care about clothes in terms of a man. She doesn't care about looking in the mirror as a mm. guy, you know, and I said, that doesn't surprise me because when I, I would notice when people came here a lot of times, some of the people who were living as men who came here, they'd still be wearing like their, their button-down shirts that they wore in college, you know? It's like in male mode, you know, they weren't caring so much. Not all, some were more, you know, uh, fashionable as mm -hmm. guys, but most of the time in their male clothes, they're pretty schlubby. Do you think it, I'm trying to think how to say it, so like, you know, some men just don't care about clothes, but, or, or do you think it's just more to do with the fact that they feel cut off from that because they've got this other side of them that is the more fashionable side, but they push that towards their like they're overcompensating side. or something. Um, yeah, or they they just feel that like the they can only be the fashionable part can only be their female part. I think part. so. Yeah, it's like it's like the joy can only there's only a certain kind of joy. They can only feel a certain kind of joy if they related to being a woman. woman yeah, you know, this other kind of you know joy about their appearance. Like this particular student that I was talking to yesterday, um, I feel that the student is really, he keeps himself really well, you know, he swims, and, and I feel like he likes the idea of keeping a youthful appearance, but he's losing his hair. And I said, like, what, what about, like, just let's do some research and see what you can do about having, you know, in your male life, have more hair, mm -hmm. you know? You don't have to have, like, no, no, no interest. Like, that's, that's like, okay, you know, like, he'd rather, like, devote all that to mm -hmm. his feminine. So, so it's okay. All right. Okay. I mean, I noticed that you have a quote here from RuPaul. How do you think, like, things like RuPaul's Drag Race have affected the kind of clients that come to you? Do they, are they responding at all to, do they watch drag queens? Are some they, of my... Or do they feel like it's totally different than their world? Uh, I think uh, some of them have gone on, like, uh, I know... One couple went on one of RuPaul's cruises. I think the person that really made more of a difference for the people who come here is um, Caitlyn Jenner. Because mm. Caitlyn came from a world that they could identify with. You know, Caitlyn was a closeted cross-dresser. So that was a world that they could identify with. Um, I think the drag world, the people who come here um, admire drag queens, but they don't want to be them. Mm -hmm. You know, they can have like RuPaul's humor, but they're not watching RuPaul's Drag Race. Maybe the wives are, <laughs> or the kids are. I, yeah, I read a couple, you know, articles from back when you first launched, and you mentioned that a, lo a large amount of your clients were straight, and a large amount of them were married. Is that mm -hmm. still the same? Yeah, except I don't consider the people who come here straight. I think when people start playing around with gender, you know, it, I think the lines between who's straight, who's gay, who's bisexual, who's heterosexual, they're very blurry. Yeah. I also think that we all have some trans in us. You know, the people who come here, a lot of them don't identify as transgender, but I think they are. Um, and and I, I think we're going to find out that more, you know, that there's less yeah. of a difference between people. You know, and I think this whole thing of who's gay, who's straight, the whole feminist movement, it's all, that's what the third book is about. There's a lot in the mm -hmm. third book. Like when, you know, in caveman days, it was more important to have, you know, uh, a binary where mm -hmm. we knew, okay, the sperm comes from here, this person ca is carrying the, you know, the, the egg, and 
so this is we're keeping you know survival of the fittest but those days are long gone you know we haven't needed that strict binary and we have more time and there's more stress and there's a lot of things going on so you know and, and as humans we're affected by all these things so um that's why i say like yeah we're going to find out that a lot that trans is part of all of us this ability to be trans and you know we all can derive pleasure from anybody you know we all have appendages and holes and you know that can we can just derive pleasure from you know any any other human being even any other animal <laughs> but you know we have to respect limits we don't take advantage of animals either much as I wish Miss Piggy Stu could talk to me and kiss me back on the lips. <laughs> it's just, an, it's been a really interesting thing to watch the change in language around trans. And you know, I don't feel like the, most people say transvestites is the way they used to, right? Right, yeah, transvestite is like a word that's now, it's a no, more of a no-no word. Yeah. You know, because it's, it's more of a loaded word. So cross-dresser became, you know, so cross-dresser is still in, in use. So, um, uh, and, but, you know, like, so I use the word cross-gender a lot. That's why the third book is Misfira's Cross-Gender mm-hmm. Fund for All. Because, you know, I feel like people who, uh, who come here could identify with cross-gender where they might not have, because of the spokespeople of the cross-gender, of the, cross, the transgender movement, they're all people who've transitioned. Yeah. But there are many more people who are in, in this movement who don't want to transition, but still identify as trans. So, but they can identify with the word cross-gender. Yeah, I definitely know a lot more people who are going by they, them. And yes. Gender fluid, you know. Yeah, gender fluid, isn't it? Like, I go to Judson Church. Mm-hmm. Now when people get up to speak, they, you know, it's like, they're all like, everyone that's, they're pronouns, you know, and they're really, really trying to understand the whole pronoun thing. You know, you can identify this as a, a writer also. I don't like to get rid of any words because I feel like if we get rid of words, we're getting, we get rid of history, mm-hmm. you know. So I've never been one to like say, oh no, we can't use these words anymore because, you know, uh, we're getting rid of history. And also there are people who, who identify, you know, they're, there are people for whom to like identify as a tranny to say I'm a tranny, you know that was like a great breakthrough. The, my books all reflect that too, because this book uses mostly crossdresser, probably transvestite too, maybe a little trans. When I first started the school, the word transgender was in use, but not very much. Mm-hmm. It was not very much in the vocabulary. By this book, it was like okay, now what do I call these people? So I used the word tranny a lot because it seemed to be less less loaded than transvestite and it was more trans and I use transgender in here but it just you know it just seemed to be a more friendly term Mm -hmm. but now tranny is like oh you know tranny's a no-no so the third book is more about transgender cisgender you know um is a little more politically correct with the words but I go into the words there too I go into the words here too I just say basically if you're a tranny you know it you know (laughs) Because the words change all the time, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know the, the acceptance of different words change all the time. How did you get involved? How did you become the person who went down to the Senate, along with Seika? Oh, okay. Like, was, it, was it through your writing, or was it through It was actually, acting? Gloria was invited. Gloria okay. was, you know, because I didn't make a lot of movies. Yeah. So Gloria was invited, um, and she discussed it at a Club 90 meeting. 
she uh, I think she had she had something some reason she couldn't go either she was I think she was having back surgery and she couldn't go so she asked so she asked me if I wanted to go um, and I remembered it that she asked others but Annie said no she asked you specifically <laughs> so and I thought it would be a great opportunity to go and I went for it um, I remember Annie saying no nah, I don't want to be political and I was like, Annie, we are political, you know, just write and be a dealing in sex. That's political. So that's how I got to go. And it was funny because I sent them, you know, they asked for some evidence beforehand. So I sent them a bondage shoot that I did, you know, and when I was exploring bondage. You know? And Annie went with me. So she took, she photographed the whole thing. Jared, the editor from Adam, happened to be in New York at the time. So he went down. Um, so, and yeah, and I, so I wrote about that in here. That's. Well, you, you that's yeah, the right. article you read. So, yeah. And I wrote about the wedding to Robert, and I wrote, wrote about, you know, Pony. And, like, yeah, so there there are articles here that are about, like, Times Square and Show World and S&M places. And so, like, these are, like, the bases that I can use for the bi- autobiography as well. And all these parts of New York that no longer exist, you know. Yeah, which is how I got kind of the job, because I've consulted on the Deuce this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I consulted, you know, all three seasons, but this past year, 85, was the year when, you know, I was signed on, like, a contract to, you know, to really, rather than a per per gig, mm-hmm. it was, like, for the whole season, because 85 was my main year, and I gave them an idea that they're going to use in the finale, too, so I can't wait to see that. <laughs> I actually have never seen it just because I don't have like a watch TV much, but mm-hmm. I keep meaning to because I hear the, that they do it really well and the clothes are great and everything, you know. Yeah, yeah, you'd like the clothes. <laughs> well, now they're in the 80s, so that's a different kind of fashion, but yeah, but they did a good job on the 70s fashion. I actually always had an interest in clothes too. Like when I first started the academy, I was like, one of my things was like to get, I loved um, the old movie designers. Mm-hmm. Like Adrian was one of my favorites, and I loved watching the, you know, the movies and just seeing the fashions that people, um, you know, wore in the movies. So I have a few books on that. You always look very glamorous in all of your photos, even, you know, from this 80s on. I think uh-huh. that's how, you know. Well, what was really funny was when I went on the trip around the world with Robert, I took like this corset, like a, not a tight laced mm-hmm. corset, but kind of a merry widow kind of thing. And then I took a leather skirt and an off the shoulder blouse. So like clothes that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily wear them, bring them on a, you know, trip around the world, but they worked for all these fashion photos. And I always say, you know, Annie and I joke about it a lot. It's like when you have a gig, once you have the outfit down, then you're, that's an important step, step, you know. Once you know what you're going to wear, then everything else falls together a lot more easily. Now, so now I'm actually in, at Weight Watchers now because I want to lose some weight because I have, like, weight all around my middle because mm-hmm. it's just that time of my life. And so it makes it buying clothes is harder. So it's like, no, I, you know, I want to fit into some of the outfits I still have. I want to you know, be able to, like, have more options when I'm buying clothes. So I'm currently enrolled in WW and actually liking it. As a woman who had her body, like, on view, did that, like, doing porn affect the way you saw your body? Uh, I look at my, I look at earlier pictures of myself now, and I think, like, wow, what a beautiful body. But I never remember thinking that then. I always remember thinking of myself as weighing too much, as mm-hmm. being too, too chubby. You know, so now it's like, it's like, what? And I always try to tell myself, 
just enjoy the way you look now because 10 years from now you're going to you're going to be saying like oh i looked so gorgeous back then you know oh my body was so beautiful back then and now you might not be thinking it but you're going to be thinking that later but i think that's like kind of um not unusual for women right we're not never happy with our bodies my body now is a real challenge cuz now i'm like i'll be 73 this year so now it's like oh you know uh losing weight is not as easy um, I joined. I, I joined the gym, and I'm taking these classes, which they call silver sneakers classes. And I thought, oh, these classes are going to be so easy. You know, it's going to be boring. But no, they're challenging. You know, and I'm I'm glad they exist. So and it and I feel myself because I felt myself like really getting crotchety, and it's like oh now I feel myself building my body up again, and that's really good. It feels good to be able to do that at this age. Mm-hmm. You know. I really think that moving your body and also using your mind and keep working is what keeps people young. Yeah. It helps so definitely. much. Also, you know, when, when Phil was dying, Phil had colon cancer and he didn't let, you know, and so that involves like some messy stuff. And he didn't, you know, he just like kind of was like so like freaked out by what was going on with his body. And I was, and I, you know, just like, I I wasn't freaked out and I just like took the challenge of it and I thought part of that is being around bodies and human functions and you know the body is wet and messy and you know you learn that in porn and you know dealing with with the he had colostomy bag and stuff dealing with that and it was just like it was like baby food you know it wasn't like poop or it didn't feel like poop or anything it just felt like baby food so um, that's kind of more what it was. I felt like this is a kind of what porn taught me, you know, not to be freaked out by our bodies and its functions. That's incredibly important, you know, because I don't think we're brought up to think that way yeah. at all. And then, and then it's like a hospitals and illness are sort of a sharp surprise. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Well, if if it was my own body, maybe I would have felt differently. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's it's generally easy to be the be the nurse rather than the the patient. It's amazing that you've taken up the challenge so many times to be the nurse. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's like I consider it. Yeah, to be able to do that with someone that you love is like a, an honor. You know, privilege mm-hmm. to be able because it means you know you can just show someone someone who's in such a vulnerable position that you know that they're safe. Mm-hmm. That's you know that's a tremendous honor and privilege to be able to do that a fortunate a fortunate thing as hard as it is you know not not you know you don't just toss off that opportunity so at least I didn't so what are you most proud of I mean there's different you know different things you know individual things but it, it all is like kind of um Maybe just believing in love, you know, still believing in love and believing, uh, being, being, believing in loving one another and that that's the most important thing and being optimistic about the human race, mm-hmm. you know. It's hard sometimes. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard sometimes, yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I do, you know, I do feel like there's goodness the essential goodness rather than the god you know, mm-hmm. the essential goodness so and i mean yeah things like 
marrying Robert or being a care partner, you know, like, yeah, it's great starting the academy, you know, even though there are flaws in it, you know, it's still, it's frustrating to me that not everybody is out to at least one person in their life, you know, that I would like to see. I'd love to, you know, to think that I still have to wrap my head around that, like how to, like, you know, say, well, it's okay if this person is, you know, only coming here to the academy and not sharing with anybody else in their lives. So how how can I make it so that, you know, there's, besides just making that person happy, how can I get that person to, like, pay it forward in some mm. way, you know, or recognize that they're paying it forward in some way? I think making people more comfortable with hidden aspect of mm. themselves, incredible work. I think a lot of us are unhappy. You know, I have parts of ourselves that we prefer to keep in the shadows. Yeah, yeah. And it's really important to become comfortable. Yeah, and maybe that's it. Maybe I feel like I've put more love out into the world than than hatred. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I've helped to make the world a better place. Let's yeah. let's say that. that. That's what I'm most proud of. That's great. <laughs> a, a more... Loving and more beautiful place. Beauty. And a sexier, happier, healthier, sexier place. Awesome. All really good things. <laughs> now I can't wait to read your book. Thank, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Veronica Vera. Please head to our website to see images from throughout her career, some film and TV clips, as well as a short article. Some of her work is currently featured in an exhibition called On Our Backs, The Revolutionary Art of Queer Sex Work at the Leslie Lohman Museum in New York City. It closes January 19th, so check it out this week. We have many wonderful conversations coming up in the new year with choreographers, writers, and designers. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at ladyworld.tv and on our newsletter. See you next week.